I was shoving a breakfast sandwich down my throat. But in my defense, it was super necessary because I wouldn't be able to get through the show if I didn't shove this breakfast sandwich down my throat. So, don't be mad at me. I'm here. I am here, even though I am two minutes late. Um, today's show is going to be phenomenal. Um, we'll talk about the March for Medicare for All and what's going on with that. We will talk about... Um, there are a couple of psycho-televangelists who did some psycho-televangelist things. I can't wait to talk about this. This is, uh, this is some really interesting stuff. Some are calling Biden communists. Others are literally shoving their hands in feces. Uh, I know that that requires more context. Hang in there. You'll eventually get it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's the uh, bombshell Trump story about fraud, the fraud that he committed. Um, Disney workers are getting absolutely screwed, as are U.S. taxpayers. There's also um, a, a, excuse me, a general strike that's coming in a few months that uh, I'll, I'll talk about. I'll share with you what this group is saying their goals are. Um, and yeah, just a lot of a lot of great stuff to get you today. Excited. Looking forward to it. Adjusting the camera as I talk to you to make sure everything runs smooth as butter. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And we'll do that with the March for Medicare for All. I think that that is worthy of the lead. What do you all think? Okay, let's do it. This jacket fits me weird. I look like I'm a shape that doesn't exist in nature. Anyway, it's a good jacket, too. It's an express jacket. I'm just babbling now. Here we go. So a few days ago, we had uh, the March for Medicare for All, and... There were people who showed up in over 40 cities, which is pretty impressive. I mean, there were um, some cities where it was hundreds of people. Um, I'm sure that some of the, you know, the smaller cities maybe attracted fewer people. I know um, Lilith went to the one in Louisville, um, and I know that a bunch of you guys showed up in different places. I want to thank you for that. Anything you do that adds to the pressure and adds to the momentum to eventually get us to where we need to be is it's a fulfilling thing and it's an important thing. And, um, you know, it matters. It matters greatly. So there's a little bit of controversy around this. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, I want to get to the reaction of the media because I do think this is something very important. So, if you type March for Medicare for All into news, and I did this the night of uh, the march, you see you get Hill Rag, never heard of them. That's not The Hill, by the way, uh, describing it. Spectrum News, WGN-TV, The Washington Post from three days prior to that, where they're sort of, I guess you could say Dave Weigel is like skeptically covering the march. Essence did a story on it. WLOS uh, did a story on it. 
The Hill, um, Ryan Grimm had Tara Reid on because she's an organizer for it, so he talked to her about it. But again, that was three days before the march. Patch covered it. Truth Out had, in my opinion, what I'd say is like the best article on it. Uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel covered it. And then, so that's the whole first page. Obviously, you notice there is no CNN, there is no MSNBC, there is no Fox News, there is no CNBC, there is no Fox Business, there is no uh, nightly news of the respective big players. So there was a total and complete blackout of these marches happening, again, in over 40 cities, total and complete blackout of that in mainstream media. And, you know, it, immediately the phrase comes to mind, the revolution will not be televised. Because the revolution will not be televised. Now, listen, it, is anything accomplished from this right now? No, but Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes persistence. It takes stick to um, If you were to ask me what do I think is the most important characteristic for life, I would say persistence. Because if you just keep showing up, that's like 80% of the battle. Because most people tap out at some point. And so I, I do want to give massive credit and respect to everybody who showed up at these protests. I think it, it's incredibly vital. Now, um, believe it or not, there, there was, you know, a little bit of a, a scandal, I guess you could say, over this, or there was controversy over this. There are some people, even on the online left, who were against this march and were angry about this march. And, you know, they were saying, well, you're not going to get anything from this, so what's the point? We missed the window when Bernie lost his, uh, his, his run, when he didn't win the nomination for the Democrats, he didn't win the presidency. We lost our chance on this. So why would we waste our time out there in the streets? And as I told you guys before, the time is always right to do what's right. But also, sometimes if you set the terms of the negotiation and the debate and you drag that Overton window left, then the compromise point becomes a hell of a lot more reasonable. And the compromise point becomes a robust public option or something like that. These politicians need to know that we're putting pressure on them and that we can't just have a pandemic where over 600,000 Americans die and have medical debt double over the course of a few years and have these guys do absolutely nothing about it. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. They're supposed to be representing us, and they're not representing us. So we had to do something. And why not march for what is the most, one of the most important policies that we could get implemented in this country? And so I don't really care for or even respect the argument of like, well, what's the point? You're just sort of wasting breath. Um, the other criticism was, well, you know, a lot of what was going on in these rallies is people were like, dumping on Nina Turner, for example, because I guess Nina Turner was invited, but she already was doing a campaign event for her race. By the way, the election is coming up very soon for Ohio's 11th district. So her and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, were rallying for Nina Turner. And I guess some people who were part of this march were going after Nina Turner and saying, like, how dare you have an event that conflicts with uh, the Medicare for All march? And so people were using that to go after her, I mean, 
my personal opinion on that is that I don't believe for a second that Nina Turner is against Medicare for All. I think she's one of the most profound and aggressive advocates for that policy. So um, I do think that people who are involved in the march who would use it to sort of go after our best Congress people in ways that are inaccurate, I wouldn't do that because that is strategically silly. Um, and it's also just not true. So you have to build coalitions when it comes to getting things like this accomplished. And to be a very like insular, angry, niche subgroup is uh, you're not doing yourself any favors. In fact, you're hurting yourself. So to the extent that there was anybody who was making that argument, and maybe there were, but I think it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the people who, who were involved in the march, I would say, relax, breathe, it's okay. Nina Turner, it would be one of our biggest champions, and everybody better go vote for her. Um, you know, another criticism was in regards to Cori Bush. Cori Bush showed up to one of these events, and then you had, you know, some angry, disgruntled uh, person at one of the events who was basically... I guess you could say screaming at Cori Bush or calling out Cori Bush and basically saying like, where were you on force the vote? You were nowhere to be found. So basically sort of trying to make it seem like she's an enemy. Guys, I mean, the reason she showed up to the march is because she believes in Medicare for all and she wants to show support. So for her to then do the right thing and then you attack her for what, not doing the right thing sooner? I mean, that's a little context dense. This is, if you want to really win people over to be your ally and to fight arm in arm with you, you don't look at something they do that's positive and then give them shit for something that they previously did that's negative. You know, people need to realize how to, how to deal with people who we consider enemies versus people who we consider imperfect allies. Now, I would argue for sure Cori Bush is an imperfect ally, um, but I mean, I guess there are some people who would seriously argue that, no, she's an enemy, but to those people, I'd say, good luck ever getting anything done ever at all. Because if that is your mindset, if Cori Bush isn't pure enough to make it into the coalition, then there is literally nobody who's going to make it into the coalition, uh, to actually get anything like Medicare for all, or even a public option implemented. So I want to win and I want people to be strategic while also being principled and, you know, there was another thing where people were uh, saying to Cori Bush, effectively, why, why didn't you tweet anything about the March for Medicare for All? Why didn't you, why weren't you more prominent in promoting it? And it's, you know, again, it's a very aggressive, you're the enemy kind of tone. And I would just caution everybody involved with the March, we want to build coalitions and get people on our side and make everybody feel welcome and... The more you do that, the less that's likely to happen. So I just think it's strategically unintelligent, and I also think you've lost the plot if you really believe that some of the few Congress people who are on our side, even if they didn't do what we tactically want, if they're on our side and we know they're on our side and the record shows they're on our side and we've already won them over on the policy, well then, as the old saying goes, there's bigger fish to fry. You know, you should be going after the corporate Democrats who are sort of on the fence. Remember, the original pressure campaign got the number of co-sponsors for Medicare for All. I forget the exact number, so forgive me. But it was like maybe a dozen people supported John Conyers' Medicare for All bill. 
and then we got it to over 100. Now, we had that happen because you guys put pressure, made phone calls, but then also took yes for an answer when we got yes for an answer. So, again, my argument would be if you're part of a movement, you have to be intelligent, you have to be strategic, and you have to uh, build coalitions, and you have to be willing to take yes for an answer. Don't cast our closest allies, who admittedly are imperfect allies, but don't make them the enemy because then, again, you're going to run into a brick wall at 100 miles an hour and wonder why the hell we weren't able to get anything done at all. So I think that's an important point. But listen, I also will say people who are taking that fact about a small number of people involved in the Medicare for All March and then making it seem like the Medicare for All March was useless or counterproductive or incorrect, man, I think you guys lost the plot as well, big time. Because the whole point of being on the left, we are supposed to be able to put all other differences aside and come together on policy. That's the whole point of being on the left. We might have totally different upbringings and backgrounds and religions or non-religions and ethnicities and groups and cultures that we're all a part of, but we might even have huge disagreements on some issues. But when it comes to the big issues, like $15 minimum wage or Medicare for all or ending the wars, we're supposed to be able to come together. And so I think it is wildly irresponsible to take people who are trying to do the right thing, people who mean well and just want everybody to get health care, to look at them and say, hey, since a small percentage of these people are sort of socially dense and don't take yes for an answer and don't know an ally when they see them, since those people exist in a tiny number among the marchers, therefore the whole thing is like some giant psyop to split the left or something. Don't even come close to buying it. The whole thing is an attempt to get the left to act like the left and to fight for left-wing positions. So, I mean, listen, we have to be big enough people on the left to put aside the tiny differences and the marginal areas of disagreement, tactically or otherwise. We have to be big enough to put that aside and come together for the things that matter. So anybody who's out there sincerely and genuinely fighting to get everybody health care has my respect, has my respect, has my support, and don't, don't let any of these roadblocks get in your way or break your will. If anything, it should re-embolden you and get you to want to do the work even harder. So thinking about, you know, what do I say on this march? Because it really does seem to have made people at each other's throats. And I have to tell you guys, that really breaks my heart. Because what I'm seeing is all of that energy that was on the left and was channeled into Bernie's campaign in 2016 and 2020, when Bernie effectively failed, a lot of that anger and that energy was redirected at people who are, were in the same coalition as us. And I don't think that's productive. In fact, I think that's destructive. And instead of, I want everybody to try to be as charitable to everybody else as humanly possible. 
I want everybody to, when you have disagreements with somebody who's nominally in the coalition, I want you to steel man their beliefs and their system of thinking instead of straw manning it. Because we have made it out to be a situation where people who are with us 90%, now I see fellow comrades arguing with those who they agree with 90% way more than arguing with the real genuine enemies of the movement, whether it be corporate Democrats or Republicans. And so we have to be able to, and and this isn't easy. I'm not saying it as in like, come on, guys, let's get it together. This should be simple to navigate. No, it is complex and it is complicated. But we need to be willing to be principled, stick to the policies, and stop at nothing to win while also being in building a coalition and taking yes for an answer and having a big tent that not only would welcome in disaffected Republicans or something like that or independents who are for Medicare for all, but also welcomes in independents, also welcomes in Democrats who give us yes for an answer who are for Medicare for all. We have to get our head out of our ass, and the left has been at each other's throats maybe more than ever that it, I've seen in my lifetime. And I think that's unacceptable. So if you're one of the part of the small number of people who were in this march and you turned your anger on Cory Bush or Nina Turner, they are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. And you need to understand that. And you need to not alienate and isolate people who are with us. And by the same token, if you're part of the people who are on the left who we're arguing that the whole march was useless because a small number of people are strategically dense and maybe socially maladjusted. I think you're being terrible and wrong, and you're not giving credit where it's due about people who are sincerely fighting to improve our system and get us to the end goal. Yeah, we all get it. We all get it. Medicare for all is not happening right now. We understand that. Everybody understands that. Everybody sees what we're up against. But What are you going to do? There's two options. You lay down in a chalk outline of yourself, and you whine and you cry and you bitch and you moan, and you get nothing done. Or you fight for what is the correct position, objectively. And anybody who answers, I'm going to fight for the correct position, objectively, they have my respect and they have my support. And anybody on the left should be willing to concede that. Anybody on the left should be willing to concede that. You know? It shouldn't make you turn on a Medicare for All march, because some people associated with the march are pro-third party instead of, instead of pro-taking over the Democrats. You know, that, if that stops you from supporting Medicare for All or a march on Medicare for All, then, God, it's fucking easy to get you to stop supporting Medicare for All. If you don't like a bunch of the speakers at the rally, okay, well, guess what? I didn't either. Does that mean I don't want Medicare for All anymore? Of course not. Of course I want Medicare for All, and you should do. So if you don't like the makeup of the speakers – and you don't like that maybe there are third-party people, people's party people, whatever, involved in it, Green Party people. All right, well, then you get a bunch of your friends who are more ideologically and strategically in alignment with you, and you get your ass to the march. You know? So everybody's got to grow the fuck up. Like, it, people are way, way, way too online. They're way too online. Minds are poisoned by online beefs that ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, are... Irrelevant. Irrelevant. So I know that 
this is probably going to fall on deaf ears. But for the love of God, everybody who's on the left, let's wise up, man. Let's wise up. And what I mean by that is, don't you dare bash people who are marching for Medicare for all. I mean, obviously the overwhelming majority of the people, 90 plus percent of the people who are at these marches are good people who just want health care for everybody. Duh. Duh. So don't do that. And for the tiny number of people who were in the march who, you know, somehow think Nina Turner or Cori Bush are the enemy, you're wrong. You're wrong. And you're, you're being so dense that you would actively undermine the coalition that you genuinely care about the most, a coalition to win on some of these policies. So listen, that's my breakdown of the situation. Let's, everybody needs to keep fighting. Everybody needs to keep fighting. Don't let any of the roadblocks stop you. Don't let any of the naysayers stop you. I would love it if there was a Medicare for All march every week or every month. And I'd love it if it grew and grew and grew and grew. Guess what? They, the media, mainstream media, will not cover it under any circumstance, clearly, even though it was in over 40 cities. Thousands of people across the country went out and fought for it. So you know what that means? The slack needs to be picked up. And it needs to be picked up by independent outlets, independent print outlets, new media outlets, and left independent new media, left YouTube. And I w- it would really help if, you know, regardless of our personal disagreements and beefs and whatever, we all got on the same page to coalesce around the policy substance. We, we can always disagree when we disagree, but keep everything in context and perspective. Understand when you're disagreeing with, uh, you know, an imperfect ally versus when you're disagreeing with, an enemy, and understand that the internal coalition battles are going to happen, but they should happen respectfully and they should happen internally. And so keep pushing forward. Respect to everybody who is out there marching, uh, all of you. You did a phenomenal job, and hopefully this keeps going. And later on in the show, I'm going to get to the next thing that, uh, that's coming up in, in a few months and give you guys the option of, of attending this. Um, details to come later, but it's for a bunch of policies It's a big general strike. And right now the wheels are just getting in motion. So who knows if this is going to take off, if this is going to, you know, be a spark that leads to something. But again, all we can do is try. And don't let cynical people tell you that you're stupid or dumb or wrong for trying or believing. Because they're wrong. The only way anything ever gets done is if you try. And it starts with a tiny little baby step and goes on from there. And I'm sure that people in 1959 or 1960, when they were trying to stop segregation, for example, I'm sure they felt like, and there were many naysayers who were like, fuck are you doing? You're not going to get anywhere with this. We've always had a segregated South. How the fuck are you going to stop segregating the South? What are you, dense? They got the ball rolling, and then eventually they won on the issue. And it might take years, might take decades, but everybody who tried is doing the noble thing and is fulfilling their, their purpose. And I'm telling you, it makes you happy, too. When you dedicate yourself to something that you know is important, it gives you meaning, it gives you purpose, and uh, it really clarifies everything. It puts everything in perspective. So credit to everybody who marched. Let's keep moving forward, and let's keep fighting.
Okay. Next. Rick Wiles is a televangelist. He is one of the most hardcore fundamentalist Christians I've ever seen, and he's one of my favorite psycho people to cover on this show. So he was actually recently in the hospital with COVID, and uh, this is after he did a whole bunch of COVID denialism, and it appears like he never lost a step. You know, it appears like his near-death experience did not lead him to the position that vaccines are good and I should stop being a dumbass. No, he seems to have doubled down on his lunacy. So he's out of the hospital now. He's back in the studio. And um, here's what he has to say about Biden. Well, I, I, look, I'm really being too diplomatic and too nice. These are not good people. They're not good people. They're evil. And they're they're evil dead. and they're wicked. And they want us dead. And they want us dead. Let's get it out on the table. They, call, they called us assassins. Yes. Yeah. Get it out on the table. They're wicked, they're evil, they're not good, and they want us dead. Is that clear enough? It's clear as day. I say let's meet at Gettysburg. Get this over with. Hey, listen, this is the times we're in. I mean, this is the reality. Um, these people are ruling and reigning over us. A bunch of sissified lefties would never come out and meet real men. Never. They're cowards. They're a bunch of cowards. They never would come out and face real men. Yeah, real patriots that love this country. That's right. They'll never do it. Yep. There's nothing but stinking cowards. I'm fed up with putting up with their crap. I'm a free man. I live in a free country. And men died for this country. And on my watch in my generation, we're watching it being taken from us, and we're too lazy to stop it? We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We ought to be ashamed that we're allowing these cowards to take our country. We don't want to be inconvenienced with putting down a communist revolution. Well, too bad. It's here. Yeah, it's here. And if the people don't do something very, very soon, you're going to end up in a concentration camp. And after that, you're going to end up in a grave. Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, we joke around and we have fun, but for the love of God, that last part, it's like, if anybody does some shit now who listens to him, granted, he only has 12 fans, but if somebody does some violent shit, you could argue that was incitement. You know, you do something, do something or you'll be in a concentration camp. For somebody who's not playing with a full deck, who might be hardcore fundamentalists in their own respect, and they actually like this guy and watch this guy, that's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought. But Jesus Christ, look at how insane this guy is. So he says there's a communist revolution happening right now. What? And that, you know, right-wingers or Christians are going to be put in concentration camps. My dude, like 70% of the country is Christian. 
is the 30% going to put the 70% in concentration camps? Like 40% of the country, 45% of the country are conservative. Uh, like, are all 40 or 45% going to be put in a concentration camp? What are you saying? And what communist revolution? Here's an interesting fact. Did you know that only 13% of the U.S. economy is public? 13%. Now, it varies depending on how you measure it, and I've seen numbers as high as like 15%, but that's about where it is. Even if you look at the social democracies, they are about 30%. So they're double. The government is double as big, um, and the public sector of the economy is double as big compared to the U.S., but even they're only at like 30%. So nobody's communist. Nobody's even close to communist. I would love to know, um, you know, what percentage of U.S. businesses are worker-owned co-ops. I mean, I would imagine it's probably less than 3%, probably less than 1% of U.S. businesses are worker-owned co-ops, and I think they probably make it difficult on purpose. So we're not, float, uh, we're not flirting with any sort of real leftism. I mean, you could argue that the New Deal or the remnants of some left ideas and social democratic ideas being implemented, but how small that is compared to the rest of the economy, it's, it's astonishing, really. And he says there's a communist revolution happening right now. Imagine thinking Joe Biden is doing a communist revolution. The guy can barely get through a sentence. He needs help from CNN hosts to get out a basic thought, as we covered the other day on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Joe Biden leading a communist revolution. The guy half agrees with you, Rick, and your Republican buddies. Joe Biden supported the Iraq War, supported the Patriot Act. You know, Joe Biden supported the crime bill. I think he wrote the crime bill and the bankruptcy bill. This is a guy who's a tough on crime. You know, uh, he's a drug warrior. For the love of God, dude, take yes for an answer. You know, there's only a few Democrats in the country, like, like Joe Manchin, for example, and Kirsten Cinema, who are to the right of Joe Biden. But no, in the mind of Rick Wiles, they're all communists. Joe Biden's a communist. Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are communists. Even though, by the way, what was the number? I think the number was 60%. I think that Joe Manchin voted with Trump 60% of the time. So if Manchin's um, a communist, is Trump a little bit of a communist himself? Don't answer that, Rick. He might say yes. I love how he said, let's meet at Gettysburg. The sissified lefties will never fight us. They'd never fight us. Dude, you act like you're not really overweight, really old, didn't just have COVID, and, you know, don't read the Bible and watch NASCAR every day as you battle your sexual urges. Don't act like you're some tough guy, bro. Everybody knows you're not a tough guy. You're not going to bring about a Gettysburg. You and, like, your, your 17 fans get together, and all of them are, like, over 60. What are you going to do? You're gonna, you're gonna, you want to fight Antifa in the streets or some shit? Good luck with that, buddy. They're evil, and they're wicked, and they want us dead. They want us dead. By the way, this is historically how atrocities happen. It's a group claiming we're so under siege, we're so under attack, we need to respond before they get us. And that's what they do. That Historically, that's always how it happens. It's, it's this a dominant culture playing the victim to an extreme degree where they make people feel like if we don't strike, 
then we're going to be, and that's what he's doing here. Now, again, thankfully, he doesn't have many fans or listeners, but Jesus Christ. I mean, this is extreme stuff, man. And it goes to show you, it doesn't matter who the Democratic president is. They're always going to say the same shit. So it should have been Bernie. Because guess what? The arguments they would have used against Bernie are the same that they used against Biden. So it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. Oh, my God, communism. Oh, my God, socialism. Oh, my God, they're going to kill you. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. They said the same thing about Barack Obama. Meanwhile, Barack Obama, under Barack Obama, the uh, number of public sector jobs, government jobs, decreased, and the number of private sector jobs increased by millions. Some communist. And I don't know what happened in terms of how many workers, you know, how many worker-owned co-ops there were under Obama, for example. I don't know that number, but obviously it wasn't a priority of his administration and not much happened. It'd be nice if it was, but this is, this is the political opposition. The further right you go on the spectrum, the more lunatic they get, the more lunacy they espouse. I'm, uh, as you guys could tell, I'm sort of torn between the instinct of like, Jesus Christ, this is dangerous, this might be incitement, and holy shit, look at this freak show. I'm sort of torn between those two things. I find it hard to believe that this is convincing to anybody at all. But, you know, there's some percentage of the population out there that watches this and likes it as much as you guys watching this show like this show. And that is a disturbing thought. All right, let's talk about Cuomo. So it looks like Joe Biden and his administration are protecting Andrew Cuomo. So the New York Post says Biden DOJ drops civil rights probe of Governor Cuomo over nursing homes and COVID-19. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So it looks like there might be no accountability, at least from the Department of Justice, when it comes to Cuomo and uh, what he did with nursing homes. So I'm sure all of you guys remember we covered it in detail, but he drafted an order which basically said that – Nursing homes have to take back, they have to take back um, older folks who have COVID-19. So they did, and then COVID-19 absolutely ripped through these senior living facilities. And um, a lot of people died. Thousands of people died as a result of that. I mean, it's a really, it was a really, really dangerous thing and dumb thing to do. And it was against... I think CDC guidelines or FDA guidelines, um, really just criminal. It was absolutely criminal. And I think it was just a matter of convenience. Like, where are we going to put these people if we don't allow them back in the nursing homes? Okay, put them back in the nursing homes. COVID-positive people. The results were horrendous. So um, now the good news is, even though the Department of Justice is dropping this, uh, Cuomo is still under investigation by the FBI and by the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. So this isn't the only investigation into him. Um, Just the Department of Justice one has been dropped. That being said, the Department of Justice one shouldn't have been dropped if you actually care about justice. So the probes that are going on now involve Cuomo's handling of the nursing homes and his $5.1 million deal for his pandemic memoir. That is just rubbing salt in the wound, isn't it? Making this decision, which led to the deaths of thousands, and then writing a book about, like, how he defeated COVID. $5.1 million deal for that memoir. Oh, that makes my blood boil. 
Um, in a letter Friday, the DOJ's Office of Legislative Affairs told Representative Steve Scalise, who's the ranking member of that subcommittee, um, that New York was off the hook in connection with violations of the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act. When I first read, oh, it's a civil rights case, I was like, I don't understand. How is this a civil rights case? But then I got the further context. It's Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act. So really, it's like saying you violated the human rights of the senior citizens who are in these institutions. That's what it's like saying. And again, he's getting off. Um, in August, the DOJ Civil Rights Division requested information from New York in connection with a March 25, 2020 order from the State Department of Health that required nursing homes to admit medically stable COVID-19 patients discharged from hospitals. So they got the records, and even having seen the records, they're dropping the case. Now, here's why I think an easy takeaway from this would be Cuomo and Biden are allies, and they probably like each other, and so that's why Cuomo is effectively getting away with it. That's very possible, if not likely, but there is another piece of context which is super important. Um, there are at least four other states that implemented the exact same rules. So if you go after Cuomo, you're going to have to go after the governors of the other states as well. It's not like, oh, if you did it second or third, that it, then it's okay that you did it. No, if it's illegal, it's illegal. And if Cuomo goes down, all of them have to go down. So you'd have like four governors who are facing these charges. But the other thing is, and this isn't discussed nearly enough, Republican senators copy and pasted these fucking rules and put it in their COVID legislation. What? So, for example, Fox News spent week after week after week just pummeling um, Cuomo and calling him a criminal and calling this, you know, order horrendous and evil and genocidal. And they were right about that. But they didn't tell you that, for example, Ted Cruz was one of the ones who copied and pasted this and believed in it himself. So it was basically the standard Republican position that this was the right order to do. And they all wanted, by the way, all the Republicans and all the corporate Democrats wanted a liability shield for, for the nursing homes and for all these businesses where, oh, if somebody goes to work or, you know, they're out and they get COVID at your facility, then you cannot be held liable for it. So it's not on you to keep everything safe. So if somebody has to go to work or, you know, is at a nursing home and they get sick and they say this is negligence on the part of the nursing home, we're going to sue them. The COVID liability shield made it so that you can't sue them and you won't win. You won't get money. There will be no redress of those grievances. So all the Republicans supported that and the corporate Democrats supported that too. So I think maybe the conclusion from the Biden Justice Department is like, they're all fucking guilty. So if Cuomo goes down, I got to take all you fuckers down. So we've got to take down four governors and like the entire elected Republican Party in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, okay, sounds cool, right? But Biden's not going to do that because he's in the club with all of them. So I think that's what's going on here. Either way, it's amazing what wealthy, powerful people get away with. And this is just a horrendous example of it right here. Okay, next.
So guess what, y'all? Joe Biden has now bombed Somalia, seemingly randomly, twice. So apparently there's an escalation in that conflict. Uh, Within Trump's last days in office, he pulled out, I think it was 700 U.S. troops from Somalia, which, number one, I didn't hear about until now. Number two, it's something I'll give him credit for. Now, they should have been out way sooner, shouldn't have waited four years before you did it, but at least he actually took them out of there. So I think Trump was right about that. Biden appears to be reversing this in some ways. So let me give you some of the information. President Joe Biden's war in Somalia has begun. This is from Politico. And he didn't even launch it. On Tuesday, U.S. Africa Command Chief General Stephen Townsend authorized a single drone strike against al-Shabaab militants attacking an American-trained elite Somali force known as the Danab. While no U.S. troops accompanied the Somalis during the operation near Galkio, Pentagon spokesperson Cindy King told uh, NatSec Daily that Townsend has the authority under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter to conduct collective self-defense of partner forces? There was an imminent threat, King said to Townsend. Ordered the hit. Townsend ordered the hit with the Somali government's approval, but without consulting with the White House. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so do you understand what they're saying there? All of this happened. The airstrikes happened with no approval from Joe Biden. This is hard to wrap your mind around. Trump pulled out of there, but there's still people there, still U.S. forces there, and then they didn't even consult with the president when it came to doing an airstrike? I don't know about that, dog. And then look at the legal rationale that they're using. This is insane. They say, hey, al-Shabaab, which is a jihadist group, al-Shabaab attacked not American forces in the region. They attacked American-trained elite Somali forces. And the argument that the U.S. military is making is they technically count as us, so now we need to do self-defense. But they're not us, and they don't count as us. You're just making that up, especially since the previous president pulled us out and Biden never officially got us back in there. This is like rogue shit right here. And again, I'll read this. While no U.S. troops accompanied the Somalis during the operation, uh, Pentagon spokesperson Cindy King told NatSec Daily that Townsend has the authority under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter? You're going to bring up the U.N. Charter to conduct collective self-defense of partner forces? That's nonsense. So they're making a, a threat. They literally said, quote, there was an imminent threat. An imminent threat against who? An imminent threat against Albuquerque? No. It's an imminent threat against our Somali allies in Somalia. And we have to bomb without the approval of the commander-in-chief? No, 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 no. By the way, other outlets, including the Associated Press, shame on them. You know how they report it? So they say, oh, it was already approved with the previous authorization to use the military force, so it's legal. What? So now we got two different, we got two different, one of them says, UN Charter, self-defense against imminent threat. And the other one is, 2001 authorization for use of military force in the war on terror. Were we thinking Somalia in 2001? No, not at all. Not even close. You can't even make a stretch argument that like, oh, well, we mean Al-Qaeda in 2001. Okay, well, Al-Shabaab is not Al-Qaeda. They're a different jihadist group, a jihadist group that hasn't attacked us. Uh, They count, though. So can we just, so if we find like a, a group of, 
fundamentalist Sunnis who are jihadists in Belgium. Can we bomb Belgium? And that's illegal under the 2001 authorization for use of military force. That was for Afghanistan specifically. Now we're in Somalia, and it's not even the same fucking group. And they're like, yeah, good enough. This is psycho. This is absolutely psycho. Now, by the way, you're going to get a kick out of this. This is really something. So this article was in Politico. Now, randomly, this was like the most informative of all the articles, even though they're not flat out saying, hey, this is illegal, and Biden needs to be involved here, and this is rogue shit, and this is a war crime. They don't say any of that, but they give more facts than any of the other articles on this. And the other articles are more dismissive, and they're like, yeah, it's approved, even though it wasn't, even though it wasn't. Well, guess what? This is in Politico. Look at this headline. Welcome to Joe Biden's Somalia War. Presented by Lockheed Martin. Presented by Lockheed Martin? So what are the chances that they would accurately call out the fact, hey, this is illegal. This is illegal. This is unconstitutional. This violates international law. This doesn't abide by international law. This is a flimsy reason for doing the bombing. And you didn't even consult with the fucking president who's the commander-in-chief. What are the chances they would call that out and say that you can't do that? This isn't okay. The chances are 0%. There's no way they'd call it out. Because Lockheed Martin is paying for the coverage, and Lockheed Martin wants more war because they make more money when there is more war. Why else do you think Lockheed Martin would pay Politico to, uh, on articles like this? Everything involving foreign policy is sponsored by Lockheed Martin? Gee, I wonder what position they're going to take. This is disgusting. And it's even more disgusting that they don't realize how disgusting it is. This is a giant conflict of interest. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Lockheed Martin is going to fund your foreign policy coverage. So, in other words, you will never under any circumstances be like, less war, no intervention, end imperialism. This isn't any of our business. We're violating the law here. And again, the facts of this case are fucking damning. They're contradictory reasoning. Uh, it's approved under the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force for Afghanistan or something and Al-Qaeda, even though it's Somalia and it's not Al-Qaeda. That, along with, um, I don't know, imminent self-defense against Somalians who aren't Americans, but we're going to say they're equal to Americans because of something-something allies? Oh, my God, y'all. And nobody in mainstream media is going to talk about this. And honestly, very few people in alternative media will talk about, about it. Oh, for fuck's sake. God damn it. You guys have to come to a loudmouth YouTuber like myself to get anything resembling the truth on this stuff. And that's not okay. And that's not okay. And the fact that Politico was okay with accepting Lockheed Martin money on this shit says everything. You should never trust them to tell you the truth on some shit. Because the truth on this would be, this shouldn't have happened. This is illegal. This is wrong. We need to stop it immediately. Maybe even prosecute... The guy who decided to break the chain of command and make his own decision to bomb Al-Shabaab here? What the fuck are you doing? If Trump pulled out and Biden didn't get us back in and you're hanging out back there and you're just like, oh yeah, bomb it. What the fuck is that? Oh my God, they're never going to tell you the truth. And it's disturbing and disgusting that Lockheed Martin funds their coverage. I mean, you, I, I want to come up with something. I was trying to think of an example to like parody this, but you literally can't parody this because it's as bad as it gets. It's like Wall Street funding coverage of Wall Street, which, by the way, is called CNBC and Fox Business. That's who funds them. Look at the commercials for a lot of those. So 
so disturbing how broken the media is and how astray we've gotten. I hope Joe Biden reams these people who made this decision and pulls out completely from Somalia. None of our fucking business, man. None of our business. And by the way, I'll get to a story later on this, but Biden's approval rating is dropping fast on a number of fronts. There's one area where it's an exception, Afghanistan, where 55% of the country is like, he's right, get the fuck out. And that's even with the media doing relentless propaganda against his drawdown, Americans are like, he's right, drawdown. Got to stop this madness and got to stop it ASAP. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Donald Trump, guilty of fraud? Maybe so, y'all. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. All right, guys. Let's keep the funsies going. Okay. All right, so now I want to talk about the Trump story. Let's do it. Here we go. So a few days ago, a pretty big story about Trump fraud came out. So take a look at this. Former President Trump gathered $75 million from his political action committee in the first half of this year as he bandied baseless allegations of widespread election fraud, but not a dime of the PAC funds have been spent on any GOP-backed efforts to back up the big lie that there was fraud in the 2020 election. The revelations first reported by the Washington Post centers on Trump's Save America PAC, which the former president launched back in November of last year, just six days after his historic defeat. According to sources familiar with the matter, Trump has his PAC only to expense personal costs like plane flights, legal services, and staff payroll. The Post learned that Trump has not pumped PAC money into any of the leading GOP efforts to unveil the apparent fraud that was embedded in the various state elections. More specifically, Trump opted out of donating a single, the GOP-led Arizona audit, an increasingly inane affair that has dragged on for months with no end in sight. Salon reported last June that the audit is being bankrolled by a number of Trump allies, including One American News Network anchor Christina Bob, former Trump attorney L. Lynn Wood, Arizona State Representative Mark Fincham, and former Chief Executive of Overstop Patrick Byrne. So that's incredible. That's incredible. And my prediction is this shit won't make a dent in his support because none of the stuff ever really does. But $75 million that was nominally raised to prove election fraud, not a single dollar of that money actually went to that. It went towards his own personal costs as they laid out in great detail here. Plane flights, legal services, staff payroll, legal services, by the way, not related to the idea that there was election fraud. So, I mean, I'm not surprised by this. Well, actually, I take that back. I'm a little bit surprised by this. I'm surprised in in the scale of it, because the scale of it is astronomical. You would think that he would be smart enough to, you know, I don't know, spend maybe 51% of the money on, on what he said it was going to go towards so that he could turn around and say, I don't know what you're talking about. A majority, most of that money went towards that. Everything else was necessary for other things. But he doesn't even give himself that out. But you know what? Having said that, I'm now remembering at the time that he was fundraising when he lost to say, we're going to fight this, we're going to prove election fraud, we're going to win – there was fine print in all of the emails that he sent out. And the fine print was, hey, you have to give over, I forget what the exact number was, so don't quote me on this, but it was like over 1000 or 5000 or $10,000 or something 
for the money to actually go towards trying to overturn the election. So probably the argument he'd be able to make is it's not fraud if you read the fine print. It's, you know, we said you have to give over 5000 or whatever it was in order for the money to go towards that. So maybe he did cover all of his bases here. But either way, it is incredibly scummy, incredibly scummy. It reminds me of a different story. I think we covered it um, about the super sketchy way that a lot of these older supporters of Trump were hosed. Uh, One person went to donate to Trump or some affiliated group or PAC, and he didn't have a lot of money. And they accidentally, not accidentally, he, the, the guy accidentally signed up for recurring payment. And like the default was recurring payment. And so it just accrued for so long and he was totally broke and it sort of ruined him financially. And that's, I mean, listen, that stuff is heartbreaking. I don't care that the guy is somebody I disagree with politically. He got hosed and I feel terrible. And you know, this is this is the dark, ugly, gross, dirty, scummy world of politics. And, you know, the lines are blurred. But we really shouldn't be surprised, even at the scale of it, because, you know what, we already knew that Trump had to pay out millions of dollars for committing fraud. That's the whole Trump University thing. Remember when he did Trump University? First of all, he legally wasn't allowed to call Trump University a university because it's not a university. It's not accredited. That's not what it is. Um, but he called it university anyway, and they did classic, classic um, pyramid scheme techniques. They did upselling, um, and he ended up having to pay millions of dollars because he did fraud. And so the president of the United States was guilty of fraud. And this isn't even to get into, you know, the countless stories that came out during the election of he would hose his workers. So there would be people he would hire, plumbers, electricians, to work on his hotel buildings or his golf courses, and then when it came time to pay, he just would not pay them. There's so many people like that who have stories. And um, so that's who this guy is. $75 million, $75 million raised to stop the steal. Zero dollars of that went to actually stopping the steal. And again, I'm going to repeat this. You're not going to hear this on Fox News. You're not going to hear this on One American News Network. You're not going to hear it on Newsmax. Um, He has the most staunchly loyal supporters. Now, granted, that base has shrunk more and more and more over time. But I think we sort of bottomed out in terms of how low it can go. And um, he's got some percentage that's just everything that's against him, people will say is fake news. Every single thing that's against him, people will say, that just doesn't, no, that's not real. Because it's Trump and we love Trump and we think he's right and we trust him over anybody else. So... I mean, it is what it is. And that's partly the media's fault because they sort of blew their credibility in a thousand different ways, including going after Trump in ways that were dumb. Um, but this is an instance where I certainly believe the stories. I think the Washington Post's correct. Um, like I said, I'm not surprised that he did it. I'm just surprised at the scale of it because that's really brazen. $75 million and then none of it goes towards the thing you said it was going to go towards. But again, if you put it in the fine print, right, technically what he did would be legal. So that's the trick that they play. If you're really wealthy, or you're a politician, what they do is they find a way to legally do illegal things. Like they can skirt the law just enough where they have the wiggle room where they're like, I didn't technically break the law, even though what they're doing is definitely breaking what's called the spirit of the law. They didn't break the letter of the law, they broke the spirit of the law. 
It's the same thing with all the legal tax avoidance that all these wealthy people do. You know, like the ProPublica tax uh, release that came out not that long ago where, you know, the effective tax rate of a lot of these billionaires is like 1% or 3% maximum. And they're like, well, technically I didn't break the law. I'm just legally finding all these loopholes to pay less than somebody who's a janitor. So this is where we're at. And um, this is an astonishing story. Again, won't make a dent. And if he wants to run in 2024, he's still going to run in 2024. And I doubt this will even come up. Well, there's one more thing in there. Hold on one sec. Let me see. I think there was one other thing in there, but... Okay, no, never mind. All right, let's continue, y'all. Ooh, shit. Oh, you guys are going to love this one. You guys are going to love this one. Let me get this pastor's name. Let me get this pastor's... Okay, Dan Burgoyne. Got it. (laughs) There's a crazy pastor by the name of Dan Burgoyne. That is the first time I'm hearing of this guy. Credit to the um, Twitter account Christian Nightmares is the name of it. Um, This guy is going to try to make a point about sin, and he's going to do something that's Questionable to say the least. So do you know what God equates as sin in the Bible? He equates poop, filth in the Bible. No, this is not a brownie. No, this is not Snickers bar. I own two bull masters in my life. This is great day. Do you know how God sees? Now listen, this is important. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be set before you like what? Like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifices. Your sin, God says, has hidden my face from you so that I will not hear. So when you come in and you're saying, God, the gods of my life compete with who you are, but I'm declaring that I belong to you. God says, this is what I see. And what I see comes up like incense before me. And what's going on in your soul, I can see in ways nobody else can see. And so you know what you say? Oh, God created me a clean heart and renewed me a right spirit. And cast me not from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And you've got chunks coming off of your thumb. And God is saying, what do you want? Do you want me or do you want you? Do you want your ways or do you want my ways? Because you can't have what you're getting the way you think you want it unless you're going to make me the absolute priority of your life. I've now watched this video four times in preparation for the show, a couple times, and then during the process of splicing up the clip. I still don't know the point he's trying to make. At first, I thought he's like, he's trying to say, like, okay, if the shit represents sin, 
then everybody's a sinner, so you got the sin all over your hands, and you give it over to God, like, here, God, take my sin. That's what I thought he was trying to make, but then upon the second, third, fourth time watching it, I'm like, I don't think he's saying that, and I don't know what he's saying. If he is saying that, he's saying it in a really verbose, roundabout way where it's not landing and it doesn't make sense. So, listen, honestly, my takeaway from this is I think Homeboy just wanted shit on his hands. <laughs> like, I really... Okay, now I'm going to go too far, and I'm going to be the bad guy here, but that dude definitely has a shit fetish. There, I said it. I said it. That's the sense I get from this dude. You don't put Great Dane shit on your hands unless you want Great Dane shit on your hands. The number of people who have ever purposefully put Great Dane shit on their hands who didn't want it on their hands is like three, and all three of them are like, babies or children who didn't know what the fuck it was. What are you doing? What are you doing? I really think that this guy's got a thing for it. Not necessarily Great Dane stuff, but like just for the stuff. Whatever point you were trying to make, son, didn't land. Didn't land. I think even the the people in the audience were like, huh, the fuck is he doing? What are you doing? The only other option is it's actually not shit. And when he says, like, oh, it's not a brownie, it's not a Snickers bar or whatever, like, no, nah, it, it was a Snickers bar. It was, you know, they melted something or whatever. But uh, I don't know. Do you believe him? Do you believe that that was shit? If that was shit, he's creepy and perverted and he's got a, a shit fetish. Uh, if it, I think that's what it is, to be honest, but it's either that or he's just lying and it's not that and he's just trying to, like, go viral. In which case, by the way, sort of would be mission accomplished. Like, if you were trying to go viral and that's all that, that it was, okay. Well, this did go viral, but I don't think it went viral in the way that maybe he was hoping. Um, or who knows? Maybe he's just one of those, like, he so, you know who sort of reminds me of? Glenn Beck. Because Glenn Beck was just the, the most colossal attention whore on the planet. And he would always have these antics to just try, look at me, look at me, notice me. And there was never any substance there, but he was like, you know, the, the carnival barker, the clown. He was just like, I'll dance for you. You want me to dance for you? I'll do whatever you want. I have a chalkboard here. I'll put on a Mao hat. Like, he just wanted eyes on him. Maybe this guy's got the same thing going on. But I'm going to lean more towards the, I, I'm still in the shit fetish camp. Homeboy's got a shit fetish. And we all know, hey, we've seen the stories a thousand times over of, like, the really repressed fundamentalist Christians who are like, yeah, I'm totally normal. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they're, you know, they're into the most insane things you could ever imagine. Uh, or oftentimes what happens is the hardcore anti-gay ones turn out to be gay. Ted Haggard comes to mind. Um, something's going on with this dude for sure. But whatever point he was trying to make, I still don't understand the point he was trying to make. He was sort of all over the place, and it wasn't a direct through line, and it wasn't understandable. Um, wasn't concise. So, yeah, I, listen, I know... Public speaking is what I do. I know what's good and what's bad. And even though he's like a charismatic dude, whatever, if he was trying to make some point, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. All I know is you're a freak, you got some shit on your hands, and you're pretending like it's got something to do with God. And, by the way, is that what God wants you to do? Is this, if God has a plan or you have to serve God, is this what he was looking, looking for? Pastor Dan Burgoyne, please rub shit all over your hands today. That's how you shall please me, my son. If that's what your God wants, I have to question um, how great your God is, how 
omnipotent your God is. Because that God just seems like he's sort of trolling you. All right, next. More Perfect Union has been doing some great work lately. Um, we talked about a number of their stories in regards to Frito-Lay, how workers worked like five months straight, no days off, 12-hour days, just insane stuff. Um, no climate control in the, in the warehouse so that sometimes it's 100 degrees, sometimes it's you know freezing in there. People have died. So they're doing a great job exposing these real labor issues. Well, now we have another one. This one's about Disney and how they scammed not only their workers, which they did, but also U.S. taxpayers. Joke. 
Disney has a joke of an offer on wages. No recognition for senior cast members that have been here for 20 years or more. I know some are 30. They're getting the same wages as people that just started. Minimal wage increases, less than 3% for most of them. No increase in some of the premiums. No increase in pay days off for the part-time members. It's a real joke what they're offering. What do we say to that? Again, massive credit to More Perfect Union there. By the way, uh, I just learned that uh, the person responsible for that is actually Bernie's former campaign manager, Faz Shakir. So shout out to Faz. I actually know him a little bit. Great guy. Um, it's wonderful work he's doing here. This is better like investigative reporting than any of the news outlets that I've seen in a decade. So wonderful, wonderful job. All right, so let's run through some of this stuff. This is infuriating. So there are people working for Disney full-time, and living in their cars. Working for Disney full-time and living in their cars. I submit to you, that's a sign of a broken system, of a broken economy that doesn't reward hard work, doesn't reward it. If it did, they wouldn't be sleeping in their cars. Okay. They cut wages and all benefits for returning workers after COVID. So they told them, hey, listen, it's a matter of necessity. We can't afford it. We got to cut the wages and all benefits for returning workers after COVID. But as was pointed out, they got $500 million of CARES money, CARES Act money. They got $500 million of CARES Act money. They laid off 28,000 workers at the same time. And then they cut wages and all benefits for returning workers. No, 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 no. Everybody needs to understand something, point blank, very simple. That's a scam. Disney is running a scam. That's what they're doing. The whole point of getting that money, this was the whole point. And by the way, this also shows shame on the fucking government for not having strings attached and not having rules along with it. But the whole point of getting that money was to keep the economy running as is. We'll give you the $500 million, but... You got to pay people the same. You can't lay off more than X number of workers, whatever. Fire 28,000 workers and cut wages and all benefits? Are you kidding me? They talked to a full-time custodial worker who's four months behind on her rent and is afraid of losing her home. And also, so if they make the argument, hey, listen, again, we had to do some of this stuff because of COVID, even with the $500 million. Well, then the point is raised, but you cut the custodial staff in the middle of COVID. If you cut, the, the whole point is, oh my God, we have to do this for COVID. You know what else you should have to do because of COVID? In, increase sanitation and cleanliness procedures. That would mean you would have to expand the custodial staff. They cut it. They cut it, then they have the nerve to say, oh, the reason why we have to fire 28,000 workers and cut wages and all benefits is because of COVID. No, if you're doing things that are necessary for COVID, in some areas you'd have to do more, like get more people on the custodial staff. And as they say, you know, one of the dirty things they're doing is any worker who was with them who's disabled, they're trying to get rid of them. Any worker who has seniority pay, which means they've been there for over 20 years and they know every, you know, all the procedures, they do their job really well, they're leaders in some sense, uh, they know the inner workings of it all, they're 
getting rid of the seniority pay, so that means you can make the same if you've been there for 20 years as somebody who just started two days ago. This is Disney scamming their own workers and also scamming U.S. taxpayers. Because we gave them $500 million. And the whole point of that was keep everything running the same. Instead, they took that money, fired 28,000 people, cut workers in all benefits, cut seniority pay, got rid of disabled workers, cut the custodial staff. And this is nothing but a fraud and a sham and a giant scam. And shame on them. Shame on them. So this is just, I mean, these stories are just so everybody understands what's going on in this country. And uh, this is what happens when workers aren't represented. Your government is corrupt and not representing you. And the management and owners of the respective companies you work for don't give a fuck about you. So who's looking out for you? Who's fighting for you? Well, the answer is really, in this case, the union. The union is fighting for you. And More Perfect Union is, is blowing the whistle on all this stuff and getting the word out. And again, so much credit to them. They're doing phenomenal work over there. Um, now you know, this is what Frito-Lay, company that you know I never thought twice about in my life. And of course I love chips, like everybody loves chips. Never thought about it. But meanwhile, look at what they were doing to their workers. Now look at what Disney's doing to their workers. So the more this stuff gets out there, the better, because then we realize we need worker solidarity and we need to fight for regular people. We have to have a system where the bare minimums are taken care of, where the floor is a reasonable floor. And we have to have a system that is a meritocracy in the sense that it rewards hard work, and these people are hardworking and they're not rewarded. So as I always say, in a sense, we have like an anti-meritocracy now. A high percentage of wealth for the ultra-rich is just inherited. Those people don't have to do shit, and they're rich. These people work their ass off, and they're poor. That's an anti-meritocracy. We've got to fix the system. We've got to fix it now. Solidarity with these Disney workers. Okay, next. So recently we had the March for Medicare for All, which took place in over 40 cities. Um, credit to everybody who showed up. Listen, this is just getting the ball rolling, and hopefully it continues rolling. There's a little bit of a snowball effect. Everybody gets out in the streets, focus on the policies that matter, whether it's Medicare for All or $15 minimum wage or the PRO Act and unionization. All these things are so important, ending the wars. It's all so important. Um, and so I want to give credit to anybody who's taking direct action because even though it might not feel like it did anything, it did. It did. And the more people that do that, eventually the more results we'll get. And that doesn't even matter because, as MLK says, the time is always right to do what is right. And the time is always right to fight for the things that we know would improve the country and make everybody's life better. So credit to all those people. I wanted to show you guys, there's a new thing that's uh, floating around out there on, on the left web. The left web. The, the, the left circles on the Internet. Why do I not know how to speak all of a sudden? <laughs> There's something floating around among lefties online. There we go. I actually got a sentence out. Um, it is a potential general strike. National general strike for October 15th, 2021. Um, they say the rights of the working class have been trampled on for too long. Starting on October 15th, 2021, we will strike to gain the rights we deserve. So here is the stuff that they're fighting for. 
25% corporate tax rate with no loopholes, universal health care for all, 12 weeks paid parental leave, $20 an hour minimum wage, four-day work week, and net zero emissions by 2030. So these are their goals. Um, so first, let's talk a little bit about these goals. 25% corporate tax rate, uh, I think that's a great idea. That's a pretty significant increase. I think this rate was 15%, and then Trump cut it even more than that. Um, now, the reality is the effective rate, which is what they actually pay, was way lower than 15, and it's way lower than 10. Some of these big corporations paid nothing or next to nothing. So to have a 25% corporate tax rate with no loopholes, that would be a pretty big increase uh, on taxes on corporations, which is something I support. Uh, universal health care for all, that's a no-brainer. Um, you know, I, me personally, I would prefer a UK-like system where it's public funding of public institutions and hospitals and clinics, so it's totally uh, nationalized. Um, however, having said that, I would settle for a French-style system or a Canadian-style system where it's public funding of private institutions. The, the most important thing is public funding, so funded through tax dollars. Um, and, you know, this is an internal coalition discussion and debate we can have. I think even if you would prefer private providers, we should, um, the starting negotiating position should be fully nationalized systems, so public funding of public institutions. Um, but either way, I, they're right on universal health care for all. 12 weeks paid parental leave. See, this one's interesting to me because um, you should have put 12 weeks, you know, paid vacation time. Because by making it just parental leave, it's limiting. If you make it 12 weeks paid vacation time, then it's not limiting anymore. Or, or, you know, you didn't have to do 12. You could have done whatever, seven weeks or eight weeks paid vacation time over a month, month and a half, two months, whatever. Um, I think that would have been more inclusive by making it just parental. It's only for parents, which, uh, it, I mean, it's good. They should have parental leave, but I would put a priority on doing something for everybody and not do it in, in a niche way, especially when you're talking about a general strike. So I think that was, that's their first mistake. Um, the $20 an hour minimum wage, uh, maybe they're doing this as a negotiation tactic. You start at 20 and then eventually you get down to 15. Perhaps that's what they're doing, or maybe they really believe in it and that's what they want to fight for. But obviously the momentum is more behind 15 right now. My idea, which you guys know, I've talked about this a number of times on the show, I prefer a living wage in every area around the country. So whether you do it by county or you do it by voting district, you would have to adjust the minimum wage everywhere, make it a living wage everywhere, because in Wyoming it's going to be different from New York. So in New York City it might be $26 an hour is the minimum wage, and in Wyoming it might be $10.53 or whatever the fuck. Uh, but either way, I, I get where their where their heart is at on this one. Twenty dollars an hour minimum wage. Um, so it's good to have that in there. Four day work week. I love that. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, and then net zero emissions by 2030. That's also um, that's also a goal that's really important. That requires a hell of a lot more to go into it. So it's almost like that would need to be paired with a Green New Deal. But this is one of the issues that we run into when trying to craft a general strike and um, any organizer will tell you this, is that how do you come up with goals and uh, demands that cast a wide enough net where basically every worker wants to get involved? And it's a difficult thing to do. It really is. You'd be surprised that, you know, sometimes you cast a net that's wide, but then you also feel like I didn't cover enough stuff in this, and so am I really doing enough here? 
Uh, the other issue you run into is like I was just describing before, do you push for, you know, almost like the extreme good and then meet after negotiating with the good, or do you just push for what you want up front um, and say, we're not bending off this even an inch? I don't know. These are all questions, you know, these are all open questions. I like the fact that they're trying to do something. Something needs to be done. You know, it, if it was me, I probably would have done a little bit different stuff here. I would have done um, living wage, number one, Medicare for all, number two. At this point, maybe PRO Act, number three, um, because that's union legislation that would really help workers in the long run, even more than a living wage law. Um, probably ending the wars, ending the drug war. This is what I mean, man. It's hard. Like, I thought, oh, I, I got better answers to this. And I start talking, and I'm like, well, I don't want to leave out any issue that I care deeply about. But it's like I care deeply about 50 issues. So how do you do it? I mean, maybe the minimal approach is the correct approach. Maybe the maximal approach is the correct approach. But either way, we got to start having these conversations internally and within the left and within a coalition. And generally, the wider the net, the better. Okay, so if you keep it simple, maybe – I mean, maybe just living wage, Medicare for all, and PRO Act. Maybe just those is big enough where you can even chip away at a lot of independents and maybe even some conservatives who are workers who understand, hey, these things would help me for sure. And it's not touching other issues that are maybe uh, a little more controversial or divisive. But again, I don't want to feel like people are being left out of the coalition either. So it's tough. It's a tough thing to do. But either way, I love the fact that they're trying something. And so this is, again, on October 15th, 2021. As of right now, there's only one, um, you know, pretty well-known group that's uh, supporting it. And that's an overstatement. Maybe it's not the most well-known group. But I think they're called the Raven Corps. And uh, the Raven Corps is basically a youth group that fights for, um, I think it's an animal rights group. And I think it's like a, a climate justice group. So that's their big claim to fame, but they're really like a youth lefty group. They're the only like larger group that has signed on to it. And again, I don't even know how large they really are. But, you know, one of the reasons I'm covering this now is because maybe, um, you know, you guys can get on board. I know a lot of people who listen to the show, maybe they're, you know, they have a chapter of the Green Party in a certain place or a chapter of uh, DSA in a certain place or they're involved with the People's Party or they're involved with you know, um, insurgent incumbent Democratic candidates, uh, not incumbent, insurgent Democratic candidates. So if you want to get involved and you want to try to get more groups to sign on to this, if you want to get involved, um, then check it out. Check it out. So what is, hold on, I want to make sure I give you guys, want to make sure I give you guys the correct uh, website name. I want to make sure I get it right. Okay, hold on. Yeah, so the name of the website is octoberstrike.com, octoberstrike.com. And on the website, they also have other facts that they laid out there. 40 million Americans live at or below the poverty line. Um, The average American is about $90,000 in debt. Damn, I didn't know that one. Um, The United States is the only developed country that has zero uh, paid time off for maternity leave. 
Um, they have some stuff on unemployment in there. Only 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of all global emissions. 78% uh, of employees with, a five, with five day work weeks are more stressed and less happy than those with four day work weeks. So anyway, the, the list goes on here. They talk about, you know, Amazon pays no taxes, blah, blah, blah. Um, I like that they're trying something. I don't know how big it's going to get, but, you know, I, I think it's my job to share this and let everybody know what's going on. So if you want to get involved, you can get involved. And, of course, as I always say, anybody who's fighting for things to get better um, and they're getting directly involved, you have my respect. I know how difficult it is. I know how many naysayers there are. I know that, you know, if, if you try and then you feel like you fail, you almost feel dumb for ever trying or believing in the first place. But I... I think we need to overcome that because the only way things ever get changed for the better is if people try. And, you know, you can fail a thousand times, but if you succeed once, that one success might be big enough to make up for all of the thousand failures. And I want everybody to, you know, keep at it, keep working, keep doing direct action, because, again, this is valuable in and of itself. Divorced from whether or not it works in the short run or even within, within five years or ten years, got to get the ball rolling. You got to start somewhere. You got to believe in something. You got to have a mission, a unifying mission, and you got to make sure that you build a big coalition of people who want to make things better. And um, looks like people are starting to do that now. And it's about time we took all this like pent up energy and anger after the failure of the Bernie campaign. We have to take that energy and harness it and, and work towards positive things. And even if I had little, you know, issues here or there with the, the demands that they're making, at least they're trying something, and I can generally get behind the things that they're calling for. So, hey, credit to them. And if you guys want to join, again, OctoberStrike.com. All right, next. So there was a TPUSA event, TPUSA conference, Turning Points USA, I think it is. That's uh, Charlie Kirk's group. It's supposed to be like a youth conservative group. Um, and there's a porn star who was invited as a VIP. Her name is Brandy Love. The reason why she was invited as a VIP is because she's a hardcore Trump supporter and a big-time conservative. Um, but that apparently led to a split on the right. In the same way that the left is sort of at each other's throats all the time, uh, the right's dipping their toe in the water as well. Newsweek says, Brandy Love calls Turning Point USA a religious cult after porn star is banned from event. So this is something. Um, so I, I read a, a number of articles on this. The details are actually a little, a little fuzzy because I've seen a few contradictory accounts. But the, the gist of it is this. She was invited as a VIP to this event. Um, I don't know if she was uninvited, like, immediately, or if, I know she went, but I don't know if she had already been uninvited, and then she went anyway, or if she was invited, she went, and then while she was at the event, she listened to a couple speeches, and then she was basically kicked out. So we know she actually went to the event. We know she was kicked out, but the thing that I'm still unsure on is, she may have been invited as a VIP, the scandal blew up online before the conference, and then they uninvited her, and she went anyway. So 
so again, she saw a number of the speakers, and then she was kicked out. And um, she was saying on social media something to the effect of, I just listened to all these people talk about how, you know, the right is now an inclusive movement and where we have a big tent and we believe in freedom and all this stuff. And then she's like, well, if you're inclusive, why am I being dragged here? Why am I kicked out? Why am I looked down upon? If you believe in freedom, then don't I have the freedom to do what I want to do? And the problem is, and this is the breakdown. So you have, you have conservatives who are, you know, just sort of economically conservative, and they fight the cultural war in the sense that they just want to trigger the libs, those type of conservatives. But then there's the, you know, the religious conservatives. And the religious conservatives are the ones who sort of feigned offense at this and said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. This is disgusting. Is this what the conservative movement is supposed to stand for, porn and filth? And one of the things, they made such a slimy point that I hated. One of the things that uh, TPUSA said when defending, basically kicking her out, is like, hey, this is a youth event. And we're not going to have a porn star here for a youth event because that is, I mean, that's just disrespectful to the parents of the families and 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds shouldn't be exposed to that, so on and so forth. But again, she wasn't speaking there. She wasn't performing there. She was just invited as a VIP to watch the event. So to kick her out when she's just invited as a VIP, what are you saying? These other people can't even be in the presence or the same room as somebody who worked in that industry? Does that seem like a fair standard? Does that seem like a reasonable thing? That she's now just banished from conservative areas, full stop? Well, again, if the fundamentalist Christians have their way, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Just kick her out. Don't want her part of the group. Don't want her part of the club. I don't care what she believes on the actual policy stuff in which they probably would agree with her. We don't care. We think it's, it's sinful. That's, that's basically the argument. We think it's immoral, unethical, and it's sinful. And it says a lot about these people. And a lot of these people are pro-war, for example, pro-torture at Abu Ghraib and, and Gitmo, pro-spying on everybody. So that stuff is not immoral or unethical. But, uh, you know, doing something voluntarily as an adult, that's an adult action. That's unethical and immoral. And it says a lot about them. It really does. And... Um, you know, I guess at some point this this battle within the right had to rear its ugly head. Because, yeah, there's a loose coalition that's slapped together simply by their hatred of the left. Uh, and But if they ever started focusing on areas where they disagree, believe me, their areas are a lot deeper. Their areas of disagreement are a lot deeper than those on the left. The left, we tend to, like, overhype our disagreements a lot. You know what I mean? Um and obviously, corporate Democrats are, are corrupt, so I'm not even including them in the, in the left conversation. But we actually have small differences that we make a big deal. They have big differences that generally they keep small and pretend like they're small. But, I mean, this, I mean, this is huge. So basically, if you're involved in something, uh, you know, as an adult, using your free will and your choice, if you're involved in something that they don't like, they'll just banish you from even being in the same room as them. So I think that says a lot about the kinds of people that we're dealing with there. And the funny thing is, and this is where TPUSA probably messed up, they don't understand that that wing of the right is a dying breed. 
the fundamentalist Christian conservatives, dying breed for sure. And so I think they backed the wrong horse because I think a lot of people on the right now, especially the younger people, they view the fundamentalist Christians as like a burden and, and shrill and annoying and overly finger waggy, you know. By the way, let's be serious here. What would I call this? I call this cancel culture. She was canceled. She was censored for just being who she is. I mean, it's just yet another example. These guys pretend like they're not in favor of cancel culture. Of course they're in fucking favor of cancel culture. Are you kidding me? The right loves cancel culture when, it's, when they get to decide who's canceled. Lil Nas X with the Satan shoe. They flipped out over that and literally said, let's cancel them. People who based their whole identity on being anti-cancel culture were pro-cancel culture in that instant. You know, um, the, I forget the name of the, of the person who looked away from the flag, but they wanted to kick her off the Olympic team. That's cancel culture. This is cancel culture. So they don't stand for anything, and there's a great example of it here. And uh, in the long run, the non anti-porn side of the right is going to win because that really is a mentality that's going away and going away fast because everybody knows, like, who's naive enough to think that the people who are pretending to be anti-porn haven't watched porn in their lives and don't enjoy it, you know? I mean, it's just you're a hypocrite beyond hypocrisy because everybody knows that you're not actually offended by this and, you know, you probably partake. So it just reeks of of silliness and unseriousness. And they're not going to win in the long run. And perhaps Charlie Kirk and TPUSA should realize that. Um, That's that old school relic, that Pat Robertson, John Hagee type thinking. And there's a reason why those guys are, they've lost a lot of steam. It's no longer 1980. Okay. Next. So guess what, everybody? Um, American optimism has absolutely plummeted, and now people are feeling quite pessimistic. So take a look at this here. ABC News says, as President Joe Biden completed 100 days in office, the country was optimistic about the coming year. But now, just after hitting the six-month mark, Americans' optimism about the direction of the country has plummeted nearly 20 points, 20 points, a new ABC News Ipsos poll finds. A majority, 55% of the public, say they are pessimistic about the direction of the country, uh, a marked change from the roughly one-third, 36%, that said the same in an ABC News Ipsos poll published May 2nd. Jeez, that's a huge increase in pessimism. In the early May survey, Americans were more optimistic than pessimistic by a 28 percentage point margin. Optimism is now underwater by 10 points. Looking ahead to the next 12 months, fewer than half, 45%, now report feeling optimistic about the way things are going, a significant drop from about two-thirds, 64%, in the Maypole. That's crazy. That's out of this world, man. This is probably the biggest swing I've ever seen in such a short time frame. Now, to what do we attribute this? Well, there's a number of things. Um, number one is sort of the reemergence of COVID, the, you know, the new variants that are spreading now, even with decent chunk of the population being vaccinated, uh, the unvaccinated areas and unvaccinated people are sort of getting obliterated right now. 
But even with the new variants, even vaccinated people are getting COVID, but they just don't have severe symptoms and they don't end up being hospitalized. But, I mean, geez, man, that's one thing where people are going, well, what the fuck? We thought we defeated this thing or we were on the brink of defeating this thing, and now that's roaring back so people aren't feeling very optimistic. Uh, but the other thing is this. What the fuck have they done? What has Washington done since that last COVID relief package with the $1,400 checks for people? What else have they done? How have they helped people economically? The fact of the matter is they haven't in any serious way. And when the effects of that 1400 ran out, you know, people were left there like, okay, well, now what? Because a lot of the country is still reeling and is economically suffering. And so if people are struggling, more people are slipping into poverty. There's uh, workarounds to the eviction bans and people are getting, you know, evicted. People don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. They don't see people in Washington really fighting for things that would help them right now. Uh, You would have needed a recurring payment, a monthly payment, in order for people to feel that way. Um, So it's not rocket science. When you mix the surge of COVID with the fact that people are now economically right back in the position they were beforehand, where they really can't pay the bills and most people are struggling, uh, and then maybe even throw in there the increase in in, – weather disasters, the continued march towards the climate abyss, which is kind of speeding up right in front of our eyes, isn't it? I feel like very recently there's been a lot of things that have happened where people are like, oh, climate change is happening right this second, and we can see it. We can see it. I mean, in New York, it's been, it was hazy for like a week straight. Why? Because the, the smoke from the fires all the way out west came all the way across the country and blanketed the area where you couldn't see the sun for a week. What? So it ain't good. And you got a guy who's like half dead leading it. You got a Republican Party that's off in crazy land talking about stop the steal still. I mean, unbelievable. All they want to do is fight the culture war. And all the Democrats do is, you know, negotiate against themselves with Joe Manchin, figuring out the thousand things we can't do and we're not allowed to do and that we'll never be able to do. I mean, it's just why would anybody be optimistic based on those facts? If we have President Joe Manchin, who 60% agrees with Trump, or we have Trump and the Republicans, who are a nightmare, there's no more relief on the way. COVID's getting worse and the climate is failing. What do you expect? What do you expect? By the way, amazing fact about this. Biden's approval rating is plummeting on almost every issue. There's one exception. There's one thing that stands out where people are giving him positive ratings. You want to guess what it is? Afghanistan. 55% of the country was like, yeah, we love that he's pulling out of Afghanistan. By the way, that's at the exact same time that the media is doing relentless propaganda against Biden pulling out. So the media is basically implying that we should stay, and they're running a thousand stories about that. And even with that relentless propaganda, people are watching it and going, eh, don't give a fuck. We need to bring our troops home. I mean, the only silver lining here is, guess what? If you start doing good things, the optimism will rise. You know, if Biden were to fight for a UBI, if he were to cancel student loan debt, if he were to do an executive order to eliminate some medical debt or cover uh, the bills uh, for people who had COVID and got treatment, if he were to do some good shit, then his approval rating would go up and the optimism would go up. But, you know, doesn't look like that shit is happening. And so we're going to keep plummeting.
and do it at your own risk, man. Democrats have really convinced themselves that, like, the less they do, the better. I don't know how you can believe that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because you're, you're allowing these lunatics to have a shot in the midterms, and in 2024, the Republicans who are open about the fact they don't want to do shit, but they just want to fight the culture war and trigger the libs all day, you're opening the door for them to maybe have a decent showing because you ain't doing shit. If you were doing shit, then they'd have no chance. They'd have no chance if Biden actually did positive things. You know, if Biden actually legalized recreational marijuana or canceled student loan debt or gave a recurring stimulus check or whatever. I'm telling you, man, that would have a huge impact, but it doesn't look like they're doing it, and people are getting the sense that they aren't going to do it. So they're devastated. All right, next. So this is something that probably should have gotten more coverage. Now, this is being reported by uh, Ryan James Gerdusky. And now this guy is a conservative, but look at what he's reporting on here. Representative Alex Mooney, Republican of West Virginia, has drafted a resolution to give President Biden the ability to use the War Powers Act to deliver aid to Cuba and create a safe zone in the country. A safe zone in the country. Now, for those of you who don't know about this, and I don't blame you because this is not something that's widely known, um, but in order to create a safe zone, you would need, at the very least, air power, but you would probably also need boots on the ground. So he's effectively calling for an invasion of Cuba. That's what he's calling for. So the authorization for use of military force against Cuba, in their words, would be to ensure the delivery of humanitarian aid, and the goals would be, number one, Ensure the delivery of humanitarian aid to the people of Cuba, including but not limited to food, water, and medicine. I'm going to get back to that in a second. Number two, create a safe, safe zone in Cuba for the Cuban people to safely receive humanitarian aid. And number three, prevent humanitarian aid from being stolen by the Cuban government or its forces. Okay. So, to the first point, all you have to do is lift the embargo, and then they would get food, water, and medicine. So all you have to do is just lift the embargo, and they'd be fine which almost goes to show you they know that, but they just want to invade and they just want to bomb and they just want to overthrow the government. That's what it is. Because if you actually cared about, we need them to get food, water, and medicine, all you would do is lift the embargo. That's it. Instead, they want to create a safe zone, which requires deploying U.S. forces there to then give them food, water, and medicine. So you want to keep the embargo in place, but have the U.S. invade and then give them food, water, and medicine? I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. Um, And then, so get this. There's more facts about this that are mind-blowing. Congressional Republicans have also held separate virtual member-level meetings regarding how to respond to the protests in Cuba and have invited representatives of large corporations to them. What? Rick Scott's office coordinated a meeting on July 19th with members of Congress and representatives with 
Amazon, Facebook, Google, Verizon, and the Wireless Communications Trade Association. What the fuck? So you know what they're trying to get? They're trying to get them to, uh, you know, set up Internet or something so that they could send the messages to the Cuban people. See how much support you have in America for you to overthrow the government? So please, go ahead and overthrow the government. Yes! It says a lot that when you have these government meetings about war, they're like, invite the corporations. We need the CEOs of the corporations in here. So who's really running the government? I mean, it seems to me like the corporations probably get the biggest say. Imagine coordinating with them. And, and I mean, you have to point out this fact when talking about Cuba. In 1960, they nationalized the oil industry. Now, the U.S. was getting Cuban oil. And then in the revolution, they kicked the U.S. out and they nationalized the oil. That's the thing that we've never been able to get over. So we pretend like it's about freedom and democracy or whatever. Are you kidding me? We backed a puppet dictator, Batista, there when we were there. So we didn't care about freedom and democracy. We wanted a puppet dictator to serve our interests. It's really about corporate hegemony. That's what it's about. And then now you see, quite literally, they're doing meetings with corporate heads. Amazon's in on the meeting. Why is Amazon in on the meeting? Because they want to try to overthrow the government and then, you know, Americanize and corporatize Cuba. That's the idea. So if anybody, I mean, it's hard to imagine that anybody actually buys the idea that we care about helping them. And then the final point I want to make is, guys, the person who drafted the resolution is a Republican from West Virginia. And he's concerned about Cubans. Hey, Dick, why not be concerned about West Virginians? It's one of the poorest states in the country. By the way, we'll cover a a story in our next show, which is going to blow your mind. It's about there's a pharmaceutical company that uh, in West Virginia, and it actually gives a decent number of people a good, you know, middle-class life. Um, An American pharmaceutical company in West Virginia that did phenomenal work and does phenomenal work. Those jobs are being outsourced. This asshole, instead of fighting the outsourcing, this asshole, instead of trying to get health care to the people in his state or higher wages to the people in his state, better jobs, instead of doing any of that, he's like, let's invade Cuba. They don't care about you. They don't represent you. These politicians are totally corrupt, and their minds are totally warped by establishment bullshit. I have no doubt that this guy thought, as he was drafting this, this is going to be popular and this is going to be awesome. I don't know if this idiot even knows about our embargo on them. All we have to do is lift the embargo and the Cuban people are better off. And actually, I know a lot of you guys probably know this, but these guys definitely don't know this. Now the SOS Cuba protests in Cuba have tapered off. Now, some of that I'm sure is because the government has cracked down on them, of course. But there's huge counter-protests now. Huge counter-protests. The media is not going to tell you that. Now, again, if you want to explain that and give the context, like, hey, they're authoritarian, they crack down on the, on the SOS Cuba protests, anti-government protests, sure, give all the nuance and all the caveats and hedges you want, but to not even talk about the fact that the counter-protests are now huge, that seems dishonest to me, because it is dishonest, because corporate media does the bidding of the establishment, because they are the establishment. So I don't know why this didn't get more coverage. Credit to uh, Ryan James Gruduski here. He did a really great job with this. Um, Nobody really picked up on this, but we have Republicans drafting resolutions for war with Cuba, and nobody's even mentioning it. This is psychotic. Okay. Next. 
So the idiots on Fox News are now casually musing about ending democracy. They love the idea uh, of banning childless people from voting. Take a look at this and then we'll respond. Here's what's wrong with America right now. The, the, it's a normal fact of life that our leaders of our country tend to be people who don't have a personal or direct stake in it via their own offspring. So let's do this instead. Let's give votes to all children in the country, but let's give control over those votes to the parents of children. Doesn't this mean that non-parents have as much of a voice as parents right now, he's saying. Doesn't this mean that parents should get a bigger say in democracy and its function? So I can see your face, Pete. You're, you're going yeah. through it just like me. I, I don't know. I, first of all, I think it's an interesting idea. I'm inter- interesting yeah. ideas. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. He's saying childless leaders are making decisions that are short-term in mind, not focused on the long-term future health of this country because they don't have a stake in the game. Parents have a stake in the game. They have children. So give parents a bigger That means Rachel will get nine votes. I would get a lot of votes. (laughs) But you know what? I I don't know if his solution, I I don't know about that solution. That seems not feasible. But I will say I agree with the premise of it, that it is absolutely true that people like AOC, Pete Buttigieg, um, you can name the left-wing politicians, people who think that we should legalize marijuana because they don't have kids and they don't really have a stake in what that looks like, um, you know, or don't have the experience enough with children to know what it looks like when you normalize marijuana. By the way, we had a, a great segment yesterday, um, the, the, the D.C. police chief saying, Absolutely, marijuana has a lot to do with the rise in violent crimes that we're seeing in D.C., and we had an expert talk about how it leads to psychosis, et cetera. Name the issue, um, and you can see that the people who are pushing this are people often who don't have children, and I agree with him 100%. They don't have a stake in the game. And one of the things that J.D. Vance has been really effective in, why I think the left is going after him, is he is very family-centric. He is going, I want to look at American you know, political policy, look at policy and go look at it through the lens of family, look at it through the lens of America's workers, and that frightens the left. That's looking at it through the lens of the actual solution, which is the family unit. If That's you want, right. If, if so many of the ills that we have in our society 100%. stem from that breakdown. Uh, ultimately, I, I, I agree with you, not a feasible policy, but what it is in principle is a reflection of the fact that what Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. You, have, you don't pass it to the next, blood, uh, next generation in the bloodstream. It has to be inculcated. And if you're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, our favorite comrade, and you've said the world's going to end in 12 years, what do you care? That's incredible. I mean, there's so much there. Look at their assumption. And they, I can't believe they're dumb enough to not know this is bullshit. Their assumption is like, Well, if you don't have children, obviously you don't care about making sure life on this planet continues and is is functional and positive and peaceful. Why would you assume that? What a ridiculous assumption. So everybody who doesn't have children is like, I sure would love it if the world ended and there was nothing but pain and misery. What a bleak, disgusting narrow, idiotic worldview. That's your experience with people who don't have children, is that they're like, bro, I don't even care about anything. Who cares? If I die, if the day after I die, the entire world is blown up by 13 nukes, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) Who thinks like that? Nobody thinks like that. 
obviously people who don't have children uh, still develop their own ideology and, and moral code and beliefs on what's ethical and what's not ethical and, and they have preferences and things that they think are positive and things they think are not positive. And, you know, I, it's just such a weird assumption. Like, you have to spawn in order to give a fuck about society? I, I mean, that's, it's just, what they're saying is, hey, we are against democracy. That's what they're saying. We're against democracy. Uh, now, to be fair, they're like, well, I don't know if that's feasible, but I agree with the spirit of it. So then you agree with the spirit of ending democracy. And also, by the way, this is a right-wing version of identity politics. The right-wing version of identity politics is that, you know, the identity of being a parent is somehow supreme to that of not being one. I thought you guys didn't like identity politics. You know, you guys say that all the time when it comes to talking about Black Lives Matter or, or some group that you don't agree with ideologically, but now you play your own gross version of identity politics and you're flat out, you know, espousing anti-democratic opinions because it, it suits your narrative. So I like when she says, I agree with the premise of it. Oh, do you? You agree with the premise of banning childless people from voting? You think that's intelligent? Um, or you agree with the premise of giving more votes to individuals who happen to have kids, then the whole legalized marijuana thing is hilarious. She says, as if the only reason to uh, want to legalize marijuana is because you don't have kids. No, people want to legalize marijuana because as a substance, it's much less harmful than alcohol, which is legal. You know, marijuana can be something that's a benefit. If the right amount is taken at the right times, it could be a benefit to being an adult, to being a human, to changing your perception on stuff, to, you know, alleviating stress at the end of the day, for example. I love, the assumption is so annoying, so annoying. Legalize marijuana, to legalize marijuana, the only people who think that is because they don't have kids, so they don't care about the chaos that comes about as a result of it. Then she says, well, obviously we decide to the rise of violent crime. The fuck it is. The fuck it is. Anybody who smokes weed knows you just want to, watch reruns of sitcoms and eat cookie dough ice cream. Increase of violent crime. By the way, alcohol is probably much more tied to uh, violent crime. But I, I also don't think that means we should ban alcohol because that doesn't mean everybody who drinks alcohol is going to do a violent crime. That'd be ridiculous. I don't, and I, she said, oh, the D.C. police chief said it. Well, then that guy's a fucking idiot. I don't care if he said that. He's a dumbass. What a stupid idea. Weed leads to a rise in violent crime. Ridiculous. There's definitely a causation correlation problem with that, and it's super clear. Um... And then the final point is, she says, or one of them says, oh, they don't like J.D. Vance, who's this guy who's pretending to be a populist and he's a Republican. They're like, oh, they don't like that he's so family-centric. Um, and I find that hilarious because this is from the same people. The Republicans have been arguing against the expanded child tax credit. The expanded child tax credit is being pushed by Democrats. And Republicans are against it. So Republicans are not pro-family on that front, and Democrats are. Uh, how about paid maternity leave and paternity leave? Who's fighting for that? Who's fighting for paid time off? Who's fighting for that? It ain't the Republicans. Um, who's in favor of universal child care? I think there was only one in the election, and his name was Bernie Sanders. You guys aren't even for child care. You're not for child care. 
And you now you pretend like, well, he's family-centric. That's why, that's why the left is against him. The hypocrisy is endless. The stupidity is endless. And the genuinely terrible ideas are endless. I mean, just casually musing about, you know, having more votes than childless people. What? What? I mean, it should have been something that dismissed out of hand, but it wasn't because they're such partisan hacks that anything that somebody on their side proposes, they're instantly like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Don't be like these people because they're embarrassingly dumb. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. Here we go. Oh, wait. Where's the... Never mind. Never mind. So, uh, we just got the news that... Um, the military budget is increasing yet again. So the Hill says, the Senate Armed Services Committee has approved a $778 billion defense policy bill, adding nearly $25 billion more to the defense budget than the Biden administration requested. Wow. The funding boost would go entirely to the Pentagon, giving the department $740.3 billion compared to the Biden administration's request for $715 billion. The remainder of the budget goes to non-Pentagon defense programs, such as the Energy Department's Nuclear Weapons Program. The increase was approved as a Republican-proposed amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that received bipartisan support when the committee met behind closed doors to consider the bill Wednesday night. So, let me give you, this is the most infuriating part, okay? The vote was 23 to 3. 23 to 3, Senate Armed Services Committee, bipartisan, said more more money to the military budget. Now, this is going on at the same time that everybody's bitching and moaning and whining about the reconciliation bill. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? Well, yeah, I'm going to pay. What, is it infrastructure? Well, you, you know, you got to pay for every penny of it. Every penny of it. They added $25 billion to this. Did anybody say a fucking word about how we're we going to pay for that? Did anybody say a word about how we're going to pay for the over $700 billion in total spending on the military budget? Nobody ever says anything about paying for it when it comes to the military. They just go, let's spend on it. Nobody, Democrat or Republican, is like, I don't know. Can we afford it? We got to pinch our pennies. Defense is totally exempt from anybody saying, how do we pay for that? But infrastructure is, oh, my God, how do we pay? Jeez. Bridges are crumbling, and our infrastructure is terrible. But we definitely can't just fix it. We definitely can't just do it. It has to be paid for every penny. But this, nobody says anything, and it's a 23-3 to vote. The game is rigged, guys. The game is rigged. Any sort of Wall Street bailout, any military spending, any stuff that they genuinely prioritize because they're corrupt and bought, they're like, just spend on it. When it's anything for regular people, immediately they're like, we got to pay for every penny of it, and if we can't, then we're not doing it. And they usually end up not doing it. By the way, you know what the progressive position is on this budget? You're going to love this. It's cutting it 10%. 10%. They want to cut it 10%. We spend more than the next, what, 10, 11, 12 biggest militaries combined, and most of them are our allies, 
And the progressive position is cut at 10%. So the Democratic position, the corporate Democratic position is increase it a little bit, maybe to keep up with inflation or maybe just under that. The Republican position is give all of our money to the military. And the, the progressives say cut it 10%. I don't know why the progressive position isn't to cut it 40 or 50%. That should be the progressive position. But they're not arguing for that. And the Overton window is skewed way to the right. And here we are. Here we are. I mean, this is absolutely infuriating. 23 to 3. $25 billion extra. By the way, the Republicans are praising this. More than what Biden asked for. I think the same thing happened under Trump. Whatever Trump asked for, they kicked it up. Final point is this, and I need everybody to really think about this. At the same time that we are drawing down in Afghanistan, even if we end up, even if Biden ends up staying there for, you know, bombing from the sky or stays there in the sense that they have some boots on the ground to train the Afghanistan military, even if he does that, which he probably will, you're still massively reducing the cost because we pulled out of Bagram Air Force Base. You're still having thousands of people pull out either way, right? At the same time, we are drawing down in Afghanistan. We're increasing the military budget, $25 billion, spending $778 billion on defense. How do you end a war but then increase the military spending? That makes no sense. It only makes sense in the context of the military-industrial complex because really this is to have jobs in the warfare industry in a bunch of different states around the country. And, of course, the reason why it's endless spending is because the military-industrial complex, the defense corporations, Boeing, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, they give money to the politicians when they run for election. So it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and it's just sheer corruption. But here we are, $25 billion more. And I genuinely think Democrats are dumb enough to think, like, if we were to actually cut it, we would be clonked over the head with ads in the, in the midterms saying we're soft on defense or whatever. And if, to the extent that any of them really believe that, they're incredibly dumb. Even if they were hit, on, hit with that, the one issue that Biden's approval rating is staying high on is Afghanistan. 55% support what he's doing on Afghanistan, even though the media is attacking Biden relentlessly on that. Why? Because people want to end the fucking wars. So it stands to reason people want to reduce the military budget. They'll probably put that shit into infrastructure. But no, they don't really believe in, in reducing the military budget. But even if they did, they would be too scared thinking it's politically not savvy, the Democrats. And we don't even get me started on the Republicans. They're beyond ridiculous. All, they want to give all the money to the military and just bomb everywhere and pretend like that makes them smart and tough, even though it makes them the dumbest fucking people and the most corrupt people on the planet. So there you have it, man. $25 billion more. Will there ever be a time, ever, where they just flat out cut the budget? If they're not even cutting it when we're ending wars, when are they ever going to cut it? All right, guys. Love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.